Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's bring in the guest of the morning, shall we? Bruce Kasman, JP Morgan, Chief Economist. Good morning to you, Bruce. For the markets, investors have been focusing on the likely stimulus response coming out of China. It's just easy to get your hands around. The possible fallout from the containment effort, much harder to process. What's your base case at the moment? Well, the base case here is that we have a huge disruption that's very narrowly based in China and a few other countries. In the month of February and in the first quarter, we have Chinese growth getting down to one. It could even be flat on the quarter sequentially. Global growth gets down to the lowest level we've seen since the global financial crisis. But the effects on the U.S. and Western Europe are pretty small, and they're not one way. Remember that Chinese demand coming down also lowers global energy prices. It lowers global interest rates, which actually is a plus for consumers in the uh, in the West. Um, but the bottom line, I think, is that this is going to be extremely disruptive but it is not going to derail what we actually believe is a pretty positive story for the global economy in 2020. Let's get some numbers, Bruce. Q1, what does it look like in China? Uh, sequentially about 1%. Q2? 9.5%. That's a massive V. That's a massive V. All you really need is that by the time we're sitting here at the end of March, the virus is starting to fade and producers are starting to make up the lost output that they had in the month of February and early March. That's, that's the way it happened after Tohoku. That's the way it happened right. after SARS. You just have to believe, and this is the real call, is that this doesn't spread and okay. become a global event over the next two Lisa months. Lisa wants to jump in here. Have you ever seen that in your study, your PhD at Columbia, where you go from 1% to 9% in 100 days? We see it all the time. Whenever you have this, usually it's not on a macro basis, but you see these events where you have storms, where you have shocks. We have a couple of weeks down and then a, a, a quick rebound. It's like, it's like when AC Milan wins. I mean, the oh. Italian economy. Shifts. I'm not sure we rebound, though, Lisa. <laughs> I will say there is a question also of how much this rebound is predicated on more stimulus from central banks. Um, it's not predicated on more stimulus, but we might get some more stimulus. It is predicated on the idea that the Chinese government comes in here and prevents any credit problems coming from the disruption and that they continue to provide stimulus. But that's more of an issue around growth in the second half of the year. What you really just need is for factories to open up and people to start moving around again in the month of March, not now. But as we look over the next four to six weeks, we have to be comfortable that things start to get more normal. Are you comfortable? I'm not as comfortable as I'd like to be, and I don't want to ignore the downside risk here. I think what you have in the market is a small but very dangerous risk factor that things turn out to be uh, unprecedented in terms of how it plays out. Tom, this is what I'm struggling with. It's one thing for industrial production to come back. It's another thing for services. It's another thing for the Starbucks uh, stores that are closed. I don't understand from that perspective, Bruce, how we get, how we compensate for those lost business opportunities. Well, we don't compensate for it. We gradually recover. And remember, in growth terms, going from having a factory shut down to a factory operating at 70% or having a Starbucks shut down to a Starbucks opening but still having 50 or 60% of the of the flow is a big change in growth. And I, I want to emphasize this. We, we live in a world where we talk about growth, but the level of activity is going to be low lower than it would have been probably all the way through the end of the year in China, and very small amount, though, on the global basis. Bruce, we're coming into 2020 with Europe not quite on its knees, but struggling. Yeah. If you're looking for 1% out of China in Q1, and you have a European economy near stall speed, yeah. do you get a V-shaped recovery in Europe? 
Well, I wouldn't call the European recovery V-shaped because I don't think Europe's going to get hit by the same disruptive effect. But I actually think what we're missing as we're watching the weak data in Europe is that the idiosyncratic drags that have hit the UK have hit Germany around the global drag from trade conflicts fading is I think setting us up for Europe being the biggest surprise to the upside really? in 2020. Euro Swiss this morning, Tom, lowest level since 2015. The Swiss yeah. is ripping, the Euro's breaking down. Bruce, what is the quantitative linkage of all these economies? If you're having a beverage of your choice with Vice Chairman Clarida yeah. or with Chairman Powell, what are the linkages of Mercedes-Benz flat on its back in Germany versus, you know, that we're hearing reports of the Chancellor of the Exchequer stepping aside? Is that right, John? Yeah, we're just getting that confirmed, you know, actually. I mean, the UK this, Chancellor this, resigning, Tom. The cacophony of the news out there, how linked is all this, or is it truly idiosyncratic? Well, I think the... The way to look at what happened in 2019 is we had a set of country-specific factors and hitting in Europe around the global story around U.S.-China trade. And now what we think we're seeing is that global shock begin to fade. And we're also believing that the Brexit shock, along with U.K. fiscal stimulus, the German auto industry shock, which has proved to push German inventories to super low levels is going to be coming together to provide some fuel. On the issue of China, and I think this is really important, the difference between having factories shut down for three or four weeks and three or four months is huge. The supply chain can handle two or three weeks without a serious disruption. Yeah. But if you extend this out for a few months, then the world looks very different and the dynamics of spillovers begin to come much more serious. You guys saw the car sales out of China this morning, down 20% for the month of January, and the association that puts these numbers together looking for another drop of 30% in the month of February. Biggest drop ever for the month of January, Unreal. and this is exactly where my mind went, which is the question is, how does this bleed over into Germany? How does this yeah. bleed over into global auto demand? But uh, here's the point. We're gonna start to see data coming in for January and February, and particularly February. It's right. gonna look horrible. And then the real question is, how much does it bounce back in March? If you're a German producer and you think the Chinese sales uh, pullback is about the virus and is going right. to last four or five weeks, okay. you don't stop production. You build inventories for that period and you continue more Bruce, normally. The question is, is it going to be coming back to normal relatively quickly? Bruce, I'm drowning and happy this week. We've had three major bulls in the bull market. You're coming in here happy on a lift as well. I got Valentine's today this morning, so I'm ready to fall off a cliff into <laughs> negativity. Okay, help me here. How does David Kelly and others at JP Morgan, how do they take your optimism and bring it over to market? Can you link Casman optimism 12 months out into market optimism? Yeah, I think for sure. I think we have to obviously price in that risk and we don't ignore that small risk. But I think if you're sitting as an investor and you think that, as I do, by the time we're sitting here in June and July, we're not going to be talking about viruses, but we're going to be talking about lift in the global economy, then risky assets are going to do relatively well. And we're going to be watching the world pick up in a broad-based way. And that's, a, that's yeah. a relatively simple, but it's not necessarily ignoring some small tail yeah. risk that we have to deal with here. Here's and the way it is, folks. Global Wall Street, Friday afternoon and into Friday evening, you will wait for the research note from Bruce Kaz and Michael Ferroli and the rest at J.P. Morgan. John? Hey, Bruce. Great to catch up with you. Bruce Kasman there. J.P. Morgan, Chief Economist. Wait and get on the latest with markets. 
front and centre, Tom, a new method for testing the coronavirus in Hubei, leading to a spike in coronavirus cases. Yeah, and the, the methodology of the body count, and this is, of course, done under chaos. They, well, they built the hospital in, what, 10 days or something? I mean, this is crisis proportions in a, uh, new ratios, new mathematics this morning that everyone's adjusting to. We have been so advantaged uh, to speak to Peter Hotez of Baylor, of Anthony Frucci, arguably America's giant in immunology. And now we speak again with Dr. Roan of UCL. She began at the University of Washington in their world-class microbiology program. She still has malachite green under her fingernails from Micro 101 years ago at Washington. And she is truly definitive on virus and particularly some of the oddities of the acclaimed cat virus and research from years ago. Uh, Dr. Rowan, wonderful to have you back with us today. What have you learned in the last week about this virus? Well, things have changed quite considerably even overnight. So uh, things were looking a little bit predictable. It looked as if the virus, although it was still going strong in China, appeared to be heading toward a plateau. But um, overnight that all changed. And it's looking now as if there may be many more cases than we initially thought because they've now revised the way that they're diagnosing the patients over there. I calculated the illness rate on one of the cruise ships, not the one in the Gulf of Thailand. It's something in the vicinity of 6% of the ship is sick. What is, and I'll use this word as an amateur, what is the virulence of this virus as compared to things you've seen before? Well, it's definitely highly infectious, so it's a very contagious virus. However, despite all of the the scary things that we're hearing from China and Wuhan at the moment, it still looks as if the lethality rate is not greater than that of, say, seasonal influenza. Now, that doesn't mean it's a pussycat. Seasonal influenza in the U.S. alone kills 12 to 16,000 people a year. But we have immunity to influenza. It's an old virus. So if, if the coronavirus gets that same kind of foothold as, as our seasonal flu with the same fatality rate, we, we could be looking at a lot of people dying. Dr. Ross, speak for Wall Street and for investors in financial markets. There seems to be, this morning at least, relatively speaking, a lack of faith in the data coming out of China now. Are they under-reporting? Those are the questions that I'm hearing consistently. I think one worry is that the top U.S. health experts that want to join an international group heading to the center of the coronavirus outbreak in China said they still haven't had an answer on whether they'll be allowed into the country. What's happening in terms of getting that foreign help into the country to get more hands on that data? It's really difficult. I mean, I don't think they're necessarily underreporting because they're trying to hide things. I think Wuhan in particular, the epicenter, is in complete chaos now. Uh, it, it, other, other cities in China are better off, but still everybody's on lockdown. It's, nobody knows what's going on, probably not even the Chinese. We can't really necessarily blame them for this. It, it's, it's out of control in Hubei province. And I think until... We have any idea of how contagious this is and how, how well their lockdown has, has worked. It, it probably is quite dangerous to travel there. Dr. Roan, what questions do you need to see answered to determine whether we're getting towards some sort of plateau? Well, we need to know how many people are infected. This has become increasingly difficult now because initially, outside of China, we were using the very old reliable method of contact tracing. We knew every single individual who had traveled to China. We were tracing them and their contacts. But now with with the, the recent developments in the United Kingdom, where we've had this man who went to a 
Singapore, and then he went to a ski chalet in France, and he inadvertently infected a number of people, even though he wasn't showing any symptoms himself. That's really scary, because I think the cat's out of the bag now. We can no longer trace every last person that has been in contact with this virus. And given that the symptoms are so nonspecific, you know, a cough, a fever, and if you don't know you've been in contact with somebody from China, how on earth are you going to know that you need to get tested? It's a really difficult proposition. I think we're starting to lose a little bit of control outside of China. Dr. Roan, what do you think of China's decision to revise the way they diagnose cases and their new uh, tally they, they released overnight? And, I mean, it's, it's been confusing for everybody who's tracking the calculations, but actually I, I totally understand why they've done it. The, the test itself is not very reliable. It can take at least three goes before you're before a, a positive test is actually reliably recorded. You know, it has this false negative rate. Um, they really need to know who's got the virus, and the test isn't reliable, and they're overwhelmed. So they've, they've gone back to the old-fashioned medical way of doing it, which is looking at symptoms, looking at the, the lung scans, and, you know, saying, you know, it quacks like a duck. It must be a duck. You know, these people are in the center of an, epi- uh, of an epidemic. They've got the symptoms. They've got bad lungs. Let's just say they've got the virus. I mean, that makes sense to me. Doctor, more and more companies are pushing out their travel curves. We've heard from several airlines now that are talking about not restarting flights into the mainland until perhaps April, the end of April. It's been a controversial question amongst the community that you're in that I've asked several guests and got several different answers to. (laughs) Whether travel curves actually help. From your perspective, do they? You can never get a straight answer from a scientist, but I will say, I mean, I think obviously a travel plan is going to help. You know, if if you keep infected people out of your country or potentially infected people out of your country, it will help. But at what cost? You know, at what economic cost? Can can any other country afford to do this draconian lockdown that that China has done? I I don't think we can. It's not feasible and it's probably not warranted yet. You're in a classroom at UCL. You got a piece of chalk in your hand and you're scaling the illness level of this virus with things our listeners know worldwide. Okay, great. I'm going to go back to virulence. How deadly, how how sickly, how virulent is this virus versus other compares we have? Yeah, I've got to keep going back to the seasonal influenza model. I mean, it is looking to be just as contagious as flu and just as lethal. People don't think of flu as a dangerous illness. Right. It's incredibly dangerous. As I mentioned, but, killing up to 16,000 people in the U.S. Okay, but do, but do we have a hysteria about the seasonal flu like we have about China? No, we don't, because seasonal flu, most of us have immunity to flu. Flu circulates around. You know, sometimes we get it, sometimes we So don't. the key here, not to interrupt, Doctor, but this is absolutely critical. Your major concern is the globe does not have the immunity to this virus like it does to the flu John Farrow had three weeks ago. Yeah, this is, this is what I'm worried about. So it can sweep through the population because the population has absolutely no resistance. It's a brand new virus. It's just jumped from an animal. Again, it, it could mutate. It may not be completely uh, stable. It might become more virulent. We really right. have no way of knowing. It's a huge unknown. Uh, uh, doctor, I hate to say it, but we have a patient here. John Farrell has one final uh, question. Dr. Jennifer Rohn, I'm going to let her go. Speak to the I'm doctor you, right now. just trying to cause trouble. Dr. Jennifer Rohn, <laughs> microbiologist for University College. London. 
John, why do you bring in Andrew Sheets? Because the math in his research reports is just outstanding. I love catching up with Andrew Sheets, Morgan Stanley's chief cross-asset strategist. He joins us now. Andrew, why are people still confident about the global economy and global markets this year? Well, I I think because there were some pretty powerful tailwinds that were operating before these recent public health concerns. The the base effects, uh, given how weak 2019 was, make it makes it easy to show improvement. Inventory levels in China and Europe and other places were low. And fiscal policy, in addition to monetary policy, is, is getting easier this year. Japan, China, Russia, India, the UK, they're, they're all going to ease fiscal policy. So, you know, the way that we think about this is, is I think we still have a global recovery that is d- delayed rather than derailed. And I think you have some potential that the market still gives the benefit of the doubt to the global economy and looks past kind of a week, months or two of data. But I think the risk lies actually a little bit further out if that temporary disruption becomes something bigger. How much is the weakness that we're seeing in the data due to the coronavirus and how much is just underlying weakness that people are just overlooking? Well, I, I think it's interesting. I think in terms of weakness from the coronavirus itself, I think that's still to come. I, I think that the, the data that will reflect that is is what we're going to see over the next month. And I think some of the initial readings of that data, um, if we look at Korean import and export data or del- data directly related to China, they're, they're quite, quite bad. They show quite um, severe shifts uh, in demand and consumption. Now, I think in the background of that, um, you know, some of the data really was looking better uh, until this until this happened. But I think it reflects a global economy that's still very uneven, where the pace of growth is uneven. I think some of the questions about the fiscal policy response and how quickly that will come online this year, that where there's also a lot of uncertainty around that. You've been the place to look to for the last two years, Andrew, to understand the dynamic of the US versus the rest of the world from the slowdown in early 2018 that started in Asia and started to spread globally from there. Walk me through that dynamic now, because as I see things at the moment, the US is looking good relative to everywhere else. Does it stay that way through 2020? Well, I think these these recent public health concerns, ironically, probably do help keep the U.S. relatively supported versus the rest of the world. The U.S. has less of a direct economic impact. The U.S. is seen as, as, a, as a safe haven, both on the, the equity side, the fixed income side, and the currency side. But if we take a step back and we think of the, the broader full-year trends in terms of where inventories are, in terms of where fiscal policy is, is shifting, yeah. just in terms of where the base of growth was, that all that looks better in the rest of the world. And so I still think on a full-year basis, you could see the rest of the world look better, but that's right. certainly been delayed by these effects. You know, with the uh, Brown mathematician, we go mathy and partial differentials. Paragraph two of your important note, Andrew Sheets, <laughs> you are defined by value expansion, valuation expansion in 2019. What's the history of trying to get out front of valuation shrinkage in a given year, this year or next year? How do you do that? Well, look, I think it's it's very hard, right? The, the efficacy of trying to invest based on valuation alone 
is is very good with a five or ten year horizon, but very bad Thank even you. with a twelve month horizon. Yeah. And so, you know, look, we it, even as as much as we all want to buy things cheap and sell them expensive, really? the, the just the history says that <laughs> history says that that over six or twelve months, that that often just just doesn't work. So, look, th- that's why we're focused on some other factors. I think that's uh, why we're looking for signs that some of the relative momentum is shifting. Andrew, it doesn't work over six or twelve hours, which is when I bought Tesla. <laughs> Before we let you go, can we bring some life into one of the most talked about interviews that at least I've heard about for a long, long time? It's Greg Peters, formerly of Morgan Stanley, sitting across from a young Andrew Sheets who can draw cartoons. And Greg Peters is sitting there thinking, you know what, I I like this kid and I could use this in our research, which is why some of this research became world famous in credit markets around the financial crisis, because Andrew Sheets could take these stories and make little cartoons. Excuse me, and they're like really good cartoons. They're fantastic. And to this day, Greg Peters still talks about this. Have you ever done a cartoon for Mr. Gorman? Uh, not, not, not directly. But look, Greg was was an excellent um, was an excellent strategist. He was an excellent analyst, and and I think he always tried to think about markets in a, in a different way. And I think that's uh, maybe maybe yeah, hopefully why he uh, he decided to take that risk. The tone you just heard there, folks, from Mr. Sheets <laughs> is like if you leave Morgan Stanley, it's like you don't exist. That was like <laughs> Peter's just like gone. I think they're still on a talking basis. Greg's over at Peter he, now. He's excellent. He's okay. a, a great. Always a great analyst. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're on best buds basis best. with Mr. Gorman. I highly recommend a cartoon <laughs> for Mr. Gorman. Andrew Sheets, thank you so much. Hey, Andrew, Morgan thank Stanley. you. I'm going to get Paul Sweeney's opinion on this before our guest hangs up on us. <laughs> I am biased. There's, there's different kinds of equity strategists. And Paul, some come from economics, great. And others come from following an industry and following a sector. And I really, really listening, listen to the people who were analysts before they were equity strategists. I think it, it clears the mind to be right and to occasionally be wrong on a stack. <laughs> exactly right. And that would be Tavis McCourt, technology guy. Right, Tavis McCourt, exactly. Raymond James, institutional equity strategist, joins us on the phone. Tavis, thanks so much for joining us here. You know, coming into the year after a 29% move up in the S&P 500 in 2019, a lot of folks were saying, all right, expectation-wise, let's think mid, maybe some mid to high single-digit returns for the equity markets. Well, here we are. We're already up 4.5% in mid-February. What is your take for kind of performance expectations people should have for 2020 in the equity markets? Well, I, I think the virus has, has, has really upset um uh, expectations, right? I mean, th- this market over the last month feels a lot like the trade war market, <clears throat> where you've had emerging markets under pressure, uh, risk-free yields under pressure, commodities under pressure, and yet equities kind of kind of levitate. Um, but they do it in a very liquidity-centric way. So, this, so the money is just pouring into uh, the the most uh, the most liquid indexes, and even even within the S and P, the most liquid names within that index. And I expect that'll reverse once um, once the impact of the virus is is behind us several months from now. Um, but I, but I think that's probably the the biggest theme that, that's changed versus now versus versus you know six weeks ago. So does that suggest here, given the uncertainties out there, large cap growth? Let's just stick with it. Let's not try to find pockets of value, whether that's small cap or emerging markets. Yeah, I'm actually a big believer in finding pockets of value. Um, 
and 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 you know I, I call it kind of a, a rotation back into cyclicals into small caps. I, I suspect it's going to happen when when earnings growth <clears throat> expectations start to broaden out uh, across the economy, and um, that that was starting to happen. Uh, in in December and January, and, and coronavirus has basically delayed that. Um, yeah. You've got a very significant dislocation in 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 uh, global economic growth, um, which which is is basically pushing pushing money back into kind of liquid, safer bond proxies. I hate to go uh, to your core knowledge, yeah. but what do technology do? I mean, some of these stocks are priced to perfection, and <clears> other <throat> ones are, you know, barely underpriced to perfection. I mean, what's your 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 appetite for marginal share purchase of the various and sundry technology subsectors out there? Yeah, there, there's there's a lot of um, interesting things going on in, in the tech sector uh, right now, but I think the, the primary reason why it's outperformed the last couple of years is just very, very material share, uh, share buybacks, uh, much more as a percentage of, of cash flow from operations than, than other sectors. And, and, and that'll start to wane this year and next. But I think that's kind of kept, kept the sector um, uh, performing very well, uh, even when, when earnings well, were, were, were subpar. Okay, well um, said. But as the margin persistent, I mean, everybody got wrong the persistent margins of Apple. Is it a proven margin persistency where you have to price in the present value of all that future share buyback from those ample cash flows? Yeah, and, and, and you basically had 20 years, roughly, of, of accelerated share buybacks happen in, in, in roughly two years because of all the, yeah. of, of all the cash that was offshore. So, so that, that benefited the sector. Um, and, and the other thing that's benefited the sector is, look, the earnings have been better. Like, if you're looking for a cyclical kind of uh, uh, resurgence in earnings growth, uh, of all the cyclical sectors, uh, yeah. uh, tech is the one where earnings have gotten better because, because frankly, the supply chains are tighter. So, so, so it tends to feel in market demand a lot faster right. than, than sectors like, like industrial. And so, um, the, the earnings is, is, trend is, is helping out the sector okay. as well. But the, the one thing I would point out, Tom, is because I, I did this yesterday, I thought it was fascinating. If you look at the, the large cap versus small cap bias across every sector uh, in the um, in, in kind of a broad Russell 3000, 3000 index. Yeah. Uh, large caps in tech have outperformed small caps in tech by 27 uh, wow. percent since uh, since the trade war started. So it's it's the, the, the tech story is not universal across tech. Yeah. It's very specific to large cap tech. I mean, I don't want to go all gabelli on you, Paul Sweeney, <laughs> but the bottom line is there's this idea that share buybacks is not a good use of free cash flow. And it, you know, I know I know it varies company to company. But the bottom line is these people are mint. Am I wrong? No, Tell me if I'm wrong. No, I think they're minting min money, minting right? cash. And, you know, as a growth company, as a tech company, as Tavis Wells knows, you'd like to see them reinvesting back in their own companies because that's where their growth is. But some of these companies, it's just so much cash, uh, like like an Apple's $60 billion of free cash flow. Well, what do you do with it? So, Tavis, as we think about just kind of valuations overall in the market, we got to be getting pretty rich here I mean, you think about the performance we had in the S&P 500 in 2019, that was with little to no earnings growth whatsoever. So doesn't that suggest that valuations here in the market overall are stretched? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a really bifurcated story. If you look at the S&P 500 trailing, trailing PEs, um, we've really only been more expensive than we are today during a period of time that we now call the tech bubble. Um, whether or not that'll be viewed in history as a, as a tech bubble or not, we'll see. But if you look at, at mid-cap and small-cap indexes, um, we're not exceptionally cheap like we were last summer, 
Uh, we're, we're not at 20-year lows like we were, but we're still kind of slightly below the median of, 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 20, of, of the last 20 years. So, so, so the market is, 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 again, it's got a very significant uh, liquidity bias to it, and, and that makes larger stocks uh, more expensive uh, when you look at kind of valuations and, and, and history than, than smaller stocks. And you mentioned liquidity. I'm thinking about liquidity in the global marketplace. Is that created, you know, there's been some concern that that has created asset bubbles, and that may even include U.S. equity markets. How was that on your, your list of concerns? I, you know, I would say it, was, it, was, it, it would have been zero concern two years ago because there really was no evidence that, there, that, that you had this kind of large cap bias to, to returns or to, or to valuations. Um, it's modest now. Um, we, we've had basically two consecutive years, little little over two years of really significant PE inflation in large caps relative to, to smaller caps, which we had not seen for the previous 17, 18 years. So um, I wouldn't say it's the first thing on the concern list, but it's, it's worth paying attention to now uh, and definitely colors the the, the valuation talk because it, it, it's hard to say stocks yeah. are expensive. You know, you, you can say hundred largest stocks are expensive, uh, but, but broadly stocks are kind of average. Okay. Uh, before I let you go, then what is your call 12 months out? I mean, we're up 20 something percent last year, four or five percent this year, and we're down right now, negative 109 on the Dow uh, with the markets trading folks. But 12 months out, can you get all double digit on us, Tavis? <laughs> I, th I think we can. I, th I think the, the big story in the market is going to be rotation uh, ver versus overall index performance. Um, the, the, you know, we may get a little appreciation over the course of 12, 12 months in, in, in the S&P, but I think that the big, the, the big story is going to be how the returns uh, really start to rotate into some of these cyclical sectors and into small cap indexes as earnings growth broadens out. We had a real earnings, earnings recession uh, in a lot of parts of the economy in, in 2019, and, and as that recovers, uh, after the, the coronavirus, so it'll, it'll be several months from now, I suspect you're going to see this really big rotation in um, uh, within the equity indexes. Tavis, thanks so much. Tavis McCourt with us with Raymond James. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.